This morning, I welcome you to open in your pew Bibles to page 1641 as we prepare to engage God's Word together as it comes to us from Luke's Gospel. But I'd like to set up what I'm going to read, if I may, uh, by reminding you that we have been in the course of a study together of some of the great villains in the murder of Christ. Uh, we are looking at the Lenten story and at some of the characters who played a strategic role in bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus. And the reason we've been studying this blacklist of individuals is because of the conviction that there is something in their lives that may be more hauntingly like our lives than we are inclined to face on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, that is true of the character we're going to look at this morning. However, I would say that of all of the characters in the story of Lent, this one may be harder for ourselves to find ourselves in. Very few of us probably think that we are anything like King Herod. We recall, I think, uh, Herod as the character in the Christmas story who is so insecurely regarded the coming of the birth of the potential Messiah that he ordered the genocide of all of the children under a certain age, hoping to wipe out uh, this, this uh, seed that could threaten his throne. And we think about that kind of Herod and we think, well, we're nothing like that kind of a genocidal maniac. Well, the good news is we're not talking about that Herod today. Uh, when we speak of Herod, we're talking about his son. The first Herod was known as Herod the Great, and we are now going to be exploring the life of his son, known as Herod Antipas. Uh, Antipas was a figure who was much tougher to distance ourselves from than his father was. Uh, we know from ancient records that upon the death of Herod the Great, uh, the Roman emperor in about the year 4 BC divided up the troublesome country of Palestine into four separate states, uh, tetrarchies they were called, and in three of those four states, leaders came and went almost as quickly as the seasons. There was a constant turnover in office holders in the other three states, but in the fourth uh, of these tetrarchies, the northern region, which encompassed the region that we know as Galilee in the northern part of Palestine or Israel, uh, that leader, Herod Antipas, reigned for an unprecedented 40 years. Uh, in very volatile times, he held on to his throne for a 40-year period. And that sort of tenure on the political tightrope tells you something about the man's extraordinary balancing skills. Uh, for example, to keep the Romans content with his rule, and you could not stay in office if the Romans did not approve of you, uh, Herod maintained a system of taxation that poured a steady revenue stream into the coffers back in Rome and pleased the Roman leadership. He also built a magnificent Roman-style city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He set up statues to the Roman gods in this particular place, and he very um, cleverly named the city Tiberius after the Roman emperor himself. And that city, by the way, is there to this very day. It's the city of Tiberius in, in Galilee. You can visit, and I have visited it, as some of you have. Recognizing that these sorts of Roman-tilted actions 
could also result in his Jewish subjects uh, losing confidence in him, uh, branding him as the equivalent of a Beltway insider. Uh, Herod also took measures to show the local people that he had not lost uh, a sense of connection to his uh, half-Jewish uh, uh, pedigree. And that he still felt the pain of the locals. Uh, he, um, he was clear about expressing. And so that when governors like Pilate to the south and one of the other tetrarchies uh, were having their faces put on the coins, the Roman coins that were circulating around the region at that time, Herod wisely refrained from ever putting his face on the coins used in Galilee so as not to be branded a collaborator by the Jewish people. And where other governors were allowing routinely the placement of Roman shields in public places as symbols of Rome's authority over Palestine, Herod quietly forbade them to be put anywhere in his area. And to cement his status as a true Hebrew son, Herod even lavishly funded the restoration of the temple down in Jerusalem. And so he very artfully maintained this almost dual citizenship, in a sense, between pleasing the Romans and pleasing the local Jewish subjects. When the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, how many of you have ever heard of that one? When uh, in that particular rock opera, we're, we see a picture of Herod is singing to Jesus, prove to me that you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool, that's all you need to do, then I'll know it's all true. Uh, come on, you king of the Jews. When, when Herod is pictured in this particular way, it is in part because Herod is no fool himself in the ways of the world. He might well have gone down in history as one of the greatest statesmen of all time, uh, certainly of ancient times, somebody that you and I would almost have to admire for his particular savvy, but for the fact of this particular encounter that he had with the person of Jesus, with this child his father had tried to destroy, who has now grown up to be a man. And it is that particular encounter that is the object of our study today, and I want to invite you to listen now to the Word of God as it comes from Luke chapter 23 at verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis of a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here on hearing this. And Pilate, of course, is a, a politician as well. And he suddenly hears that Jesus actually belongs to a different jurisdiction. Galilee, the Herod's tetrarchy, and sees an opportunity to shove this problem off on Herod. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, the text says, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time, there for the Passover celebration. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle, some sign, the Scriptures say. So he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious God, now we pray by the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we may understand these words, these events, these characters, not simply, Lord, as figures and moments in history, but as windows into your continuing story and your engagement with us in our lives today. Enable us, Lord God, to be touched by the light of your word this morning in a way that shapes us and enables us more fully to serve your purposes in our time. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was going up, growing up um, back in New York, I uh, knew a family who had this very interesting tradition of, of crowning someone on their birthday king or queen for the day. It was a uh, marvelous experience. They would uh, present this uh, child or this, sometimes the parent with a, a crown on their birthday. They would gather around the breakfast table. They would set this cardboard crown on the head and pronounce you the regent for that particular 24-hour uh, period. You, from that moment on, were like the creator of the universe. If you wanted a bowl of chocolate ecstasy ice cream for breakfast instead of uh, something more nutritional, it was yours. Uh, it would come to the table. If you didn't really feel like taking out the garbage, even though your name was on the chore chart for that day, no problem. You just pointed to one of your lesser siblings, and they would take that task on, on your behalf. And if you felt like speaking about, oh, I don't know, basketball, when everyone else was talking about some other subject, a single wave of your royal hand and maybe a sharp reminder from your mom was all it was needed to silence everybody else and let your interests become the dominant interests of everybody else uh, at the table. It was really quite an arrangement, this king for the day idea. I dare say there is probably in almost all of us a little bit of a, the streak of, of, of someone who wouldn't mind having life work that way a little bit more of the time. Uh, I think that impulse, that desire to be in that place of prominence and control explains a lot about our contemporary society. It explains why we love those great restaurants and spas and fine hotels that treat us like royalty. It explains, I think, why um, 
when people are getting married, for example, uh, they take the opportunity, in a sense, to be kings and queens for that particular day. They'll lay down a, a bundle on stretch limousines. Uh, we'll see uh, advertisers hawking all kinds of very expensive products uh, designed for the king or the queen in all of us. And at the heart of the American identity is this sense that we all can be that person. Uh, we can all rise from whatever lowly position we may be occupying and find ourselves on the throne, that even a girl from the ashes can rise to dance on glass slippers in the palace, that even an immigrant kid might one day be president of these United States, that one day you or I might make our way to the throne of great power or prominence or wealth or the lottery and upon sitting there in that throne find that it actually fits us quite perfectly. We are very happy there and would like to remain there. This is something of the, the myth or the drive that undergirds so much of the engine of American life, culture, and commerce. The problem, of course, is that this desire, which is in some sense harmless in one way because it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy on one level and also the fuel for striving, which is not all that bad, but the one problem is that this desire to occupy the throne or the conviction that one does already occupy that throne can get out of control sometimes. I've never met a person who, in their early days of life, set out to become a selfish lout. You probably never encountered anybody who strove from their earliest days to become the most narcissistic person in their office or in their family. Nobody hopes that they will become eventually through personal ambition, so prideful that they will turn their their back upon honor or upon God himself. No, that particular kind of character is constructed degree by degree, day by day, over a long time by seemingly very small and innocent kinds of decisions. Take, for example, the story of this man before whom Jesus comes on this particular day of Holy Week. As I suggested in my remarks at the beginning uh, of the conversation today, Herod Antipas was like so many of us here today, no idiot when it came to practical matters. And yet for all of his enviable attributes, Herod had gradually come to take his position in life maybe a bit too seriously. And his orientation uh, really betrayed itself in two key ways. Uh, in his life. Uh, I talked with a former staff member of the White House who once observed that one of the greatest dangers of power and privilege is that their holders come to believe that she or he uh, possesses unusual rights, exceptional rights. The person starts thinking that his or her preferences represent the center of the moral compass around which all other values rotate. And by such reckoning, a person can actually come to believe that she or he has the right to ignore boundaries or, or to um, bypass uh, 
laws or stop considering other people when it isn't convenient uh, to them and to their purposes. And if you think about it, almost every single abuse of power, whether in the church or in business or in politics or in family life, and we see almost every day on our screens and in the newspapers some story of the abuse of power. Almost every one of those abuses originates from this blindness, this sense that somehow my preferences are the center of the moral universe now. My opinions, my wants are the, the center of things. And it had to be like this for Herod. It, it, it had to have been this kind of a slow process of of coming to think of himself as that moral center. Um, he was surrounded for so long by, by such success, by such affluence, by so many admirers and achievements that it probably became easier and easier by degrees for him to think that he just possessed unusual prerogatives and rights. Uh, we know from earlier chapters in Luke's gospel that when his wife no longer titillated him, Herod summarily divorced her, and went on to marry his half-brother's bride. Uh, that this act was, in the Jewish law, both immoral and illegal. It was. It was just very verboten. It was not to be done. Um, was, was something that Herod simply felt he could overlook. And, and he did successfully overlook how he had crossed this boundary until he came under the scathing and articulate criticism of a man named John the Baptizer. And it got to Herod and shook him up. The scriptures suggest that for a brief moment, Herod was actually fascinated with John. Uh, he apparently had some moral or spiritual cord in him that John's preaching managed to reach. And John was quite the preacher and maybe Herod considered for a moment that the words of John were quite possibly true and that maybe he wasn't the center and needed to reorient himself in life and wondered perhaps if maybe there was a more reliable center for his life than his own personal preferences. I don't know. What I do know, however, is that now and then that sort of thought occurs to me. Every now and then, I find myself uh, waking up to something about me that has occupied the center for too long. And I find myself humbled and uh, challenged and convicted uh, to uh, reorient my life. Maybe you've had that experience yourself. The Word of God comes to you through the Scriptures, uh, through some experience of worship, through the challenge of a friend, a spouse, uh, maybe a painful crisis, and in a flash of insight, you realize that the way you have been going is not the way you should be going, that your feelings, your preferences maybe weren't such reliable starting points for decision-making after all, and you begin to reorient your life to a greater authority. That is what repentance is about. Uh, or maybe you find yourself realizing that the, the quest that we're always being pushed on by our world to seek after more money, better sex, wider power. Maybe this isn't really the true north uh, that society says it is. And so you begin over time to turn your lifestyle more and more towards service, towards committed relationships. Uh, and you find that this 
leads you into a deeper and better kind of life. Or maybe you suddenly realize that as good as it has felt in the past to chew over that grudge, to coddle that resentment that you feel towards somebody else, it isn't as helpful a way of being as it seemed at the start. And so you start to turn yourself and reorient yourself uh, by a different kind of compass and calm confrontation and conversation with the wrongdoer or the person that's hurt you. Maybe even forgiveness becomes now a new possibility in your life. I guess what I'm trying to say is that now and then, each of us probably comes to some place in our life where we perceive God as offering us suddenly a better moral center for our decision-making than, than the, the point that we'd occupied ourselves. And, and if we can manage to allow our lives to, to take that new direction from that better center, that more objective center, and no longer our subjective own center, then there's a great chance that we will find our way home that our relationships will improve, that our character will change for the good, that our lives will have a better influence than they would otherwise. But there's always the risk that, that we will continue to do what Herod Antipas does in the story from the Scriptures. Uh, we can decide that these sudden insights we have are just normal aberrations in a personal compass that is working just fine. And the Scriptures say that this is pretty much what happened with Herod. For just a moment, he opens himself up to the possibility that, that what John the baptizer knows might be the true center, might be the genuine north of life. And, and, he, and he's fascinated by John, and he considers the possibility of altering his life based on what John is saying. But when John's challenge to his way of life becomes too publicly embarrassing for him to tolerate it any longer, Herod has John thrown into prison. And then when his stepdaughter has her chance to be queen for the day, you may remember she does this beautiful dance in front of him, and he gives her the queen for the day crown, says anything you want will be done for you, she brings down an unexpected death sentence upon that lone voice of true direction, upon the voice of John, the voice of God in Herod's life. And the baptizer's head is served up on a platter to please the royal taste. And Herod goes deeper and deeper into his place uh, on the throne. I said earlier that, that there really are two key areas in which the royal impulse uh, can betray a person. Uh, the desire to be the king or the belief that you already are uh, will be evidenced firstly by the fact that you'll tend to think of your own feelings or your own preferences as the ultimate center around which other values rotate. And in fact, even if you don't do this consciously, even if you would never actually say that out loud, you would never fess up to that reality, we do this nonetheless. We, we, we live out of that orientation sometimes quite hypocritically. I know I do. I'm sometimes embarrassed by it. My kids point it out. My wife points it out. But the second deception follows from the first. We may come to believe that it's actually God's function to circle around us too. Uh, and that's the more insidious part of this, I think. 
By the time that Jesus is ushered into Herod's Jerusalem home in the passage we're looking at today, Herod is well on his way from just thinking of himself as the center to thinking of God as actually orbiting him now too. And I say that because unlike the accounts of Christ's appearance before the Pharisees and the priests, and we've looked at those already, and in spite of the fact that Jesus has done much of his most pointed teaching about the new kingdom that God is bringing right in Herod's own backyard, Galilee, there is nothing, there is nothing in the text that suggests that Herod has even the slightest uneasiness about meeting Jesus. Jesus is, by all accounts, the, amongst the popular crowd at that point, he is the very Messiah that Herod's dad had to eradicate at any cost. He's been preaching the gospel of a new kind of kingdom and of God as the ultimate king that should have been profoundly threatening to Herod's sense of of authority and hegemony and, and centrality, but there is nothing to suggest that he is all nervous as Jesus is being ushered in to his presence. I guess when you've been uh, with the company for nearly 40 years, you're the head of that company, you've hobnobbed with the likes of Caesar and have successfully dispensed with detractors like John the Baptizer, why worry? Why be threatened? And so the text says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Did he want to learn from Jesus? Is that why he wanted to see him? Did he want to open up his life to, to what Jesus might try to say to him about himself? Did he want to amend his ways and respond to the will of God as Jesus was preaching it? No, the Bible says that Herod, and I quote, hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort, a miracle, a spectacle of some sort, some extraordinary display to entertain the king, to bring amusement and novelty into the growingly bored life, perhaps, of the king. Have you ever demanded such a sign from God to prove himself to you? Have you ever thrown up one of those prove-it-to-me prayers to God where you say, in effect, God, I'll believe in you if you show me a miracle. I'll follow you more intently and intensely if you do something to get me out of this difficult pinch that I'm in. Or have you ever issued one of those very common just-do-it commands to heaven? God, I'm tired of dealing with this situation. Don't you think it's high time you got out here on this stage and took care of these issues that so patently deserve to be taken care of in the following ways that I have listed out for you? God, why do I even believe in you if you will not act in the ways that I think you should act? Have you ever done that even within your head there's part of me that relates i think to herod's frustration here when the text says that he plied jesus with many questions but jesus gave him no answer and i can imagine that the shock that was there in the throne room of herod as jesus stands there and herod's hitting him with the questions and jesus is saying nothing all of the people in the room are thinking 
Do you not realize this is Herod Antipas, the number one son of Herod the Great, the 40-year regent of this land, and he's taken uh, some of his precious Passover vacation time to talk to you, Jesus, to give attention to you, a mere carpenter's son, and rather than being greeted with respectful, grateful answers, you meet him with stony silence, Jesus. Who are you? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And every stunned listener there would have to know that there could only be two possible explanations for the scenario that was unfolding as Herod, uh, as Herod's voice grows louder and louder and more insistent and then very enraged. Either Jesus had a violent death wish or else Herod, the man who would be king, was standing in the presence of the one who was king. I wonder how many even perceived that second possibility. In truth, I think the very silence of Jesus before Herod stands as a screaming challenge to the colossal arrogance by which this king for a day presumed he was the center of the world. It was bad enough, I think, that Herod saw his feelings and his preferences as the appropriate center of moral value. I can marry who I want. I can kill who I choose. It was bad enough that he was like this. But when Herod began to treat God himself as if he existed for the king's pleasure and not the king for the pleasure of God, then there was nothing really that Jesus could say. Friends, if God sometimes seems silent when we speak, consider the possibility that he finds it difficult to talk when we're occupying his chair. It's not that he cannot talk then. It's only that God has discovered by experience that until a person voluntarily uh, gets up and gets out of that throne, that person is much less likely to truly listen to what God actually has to say. Sometimes only God's very silence makes us rethink our relative positions. Maybe that's why the people who claim to hear most often from God are not the ones who desire to be king, but those who are humbly thankful that somebody else, even more qualified, has taken that job. These are the people whose prayers are not so much of the, God, be with me, but God, how can I join you where you are? How can I cooperate with what you're doing, with what you are saying? God, help me to be with you today. 
The sorts of people that God has historically spoken to most clearly and used most powerfully, people like Job and Mary and Peter, are people who have been able somehow to view the losses and failures of life not as affronts to their personal thrones, but as reminders that they aren't the center of the universe or even necessary to the universe. So the practical question, I think, for all of us who are growing spiritually is, what kind of person will Christ find as he comes before us in the coming days? When he meets you at home this afternoon, or wherever you are tomorrow uh, as you begin the week, will he find someone who sits very proudly and resolutely on their throne, deciding right and wrong by what good feels good to me, what works for me at that time, or will he instead find someone who is eager to know the way of the king and to follow that, even if that's a hard way to go? When he walks before us in the coming week, will he find someone who is asking to be entertained, angrily wondering why God isn't doing more to sort out life on my terms? Or will he find instead someone who delights in ever having been invited to this amazing life at all, even if it's hard at times? In creation, on the cross, throughout the life of the church, in so many other ways, God has been trying to declare to us his rightful position. He belongs high and lifted up. He is the one to whom the honor and the glory and the majesty and the power are due. He is the one who, before whom the knees of paupers and presidents alike properly must bow and bend in his glorious service. So, so take a moment, take an honest look today at this part of the Lenten journey to really look at the throne of your life, to look into the middle of your heart and decide where you, as I'm going to need to decide where I, plan to sit this week. Let's not forget, as Herod did, that if any of us would succeed in even seeming to be king or queen for the day, it is only by the grace of the one who is actually Lord for all time. Please pray with me. God, this is a really hard one because we know what the right thing to say or do is. We there's not a person within the sound of my voice who doesn't want to say, you're king, you're on the throne. And yet we confess, Lord, that in so many subtle ways, <laughs> we just don't want to give up that seat for ourselves. So Lord, help us with this. If, if any one of us has been shutting out your voice because we've been too afraid that you might call us to, to do something that is not comfortable or convenient to us, 
Give us, God, the courage to respond to you this week. And if any one of us have been treating you as an object for our edification, for our interest, instead of as the Lord you are, then we step off the throne today, God. We give it back to you. And as we go forth this week, keep us from forgetting that one day, the powers that be will be the powers that have been. And thus enable us to make our every thought, our every word and deed, bring honor to the one eternal throne and derive its motivation from the one objective center. That is you and you alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.